Welcome to Fifth Wall's Building to Zero podcast. The real estate industry is the world's single largest contributor to climate change. At Fifth Wall, we're on a mission to help the industry eradicate its carbon emissions and build to zero. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I sit down with Brad Inman, a journalist, entrepreneur, and founder of a revered real estate trade publication, Inman. We discuss Brad's most recent venture, a platform called Climate Check, which seeks to democratize climate change data for consumers in the U.S. and empower property buyers, owners, and brokers by exposing and quantifying the risks related to the climate crisis through its proprietary risk assessment and report. Brad and I also delve into the economics of sustainability in real estate, touching on how carbon taxes are asymmetrically impacting some cities versus others, and the power of financial incentives in decarbonization. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks for joining the Building to Zero videocast, uh, where we're going to interview a number uh, of just thought leaders and high-profile people at the intersection of real estate and technology, including Brad who is with me today from, where are you coming in from, Brad? I'm in uh, Virginia, near Chesapeake Bay. I'm, I've been on a uh, month-long road trip from San Francisco to New York, and now my wife and I are moseying down the coast of Florida. Wow, well, this is the time <laughs> to do safe. that. Yeah, staying safe and uh, doing our online uh, COVID testing. I uh, just sent mine in, um, it's a 24-hour turnaround, just uh, I found the COVID test, you know what it does, it, uh, it makes you be, once you get a negative test, you, you tend to be really safe because you want to protect that position. Right, right. Um, well, I've heard obviously so much about you and your name as, you know, we've been building Fifth Wall has come up so frequently. So it's a shame that we're just meeting for the first time now, but maybe yeah. for my benefit and, you know, our listeners' benefit, can you just share you know, your experience around kind of two things, just real estate and its intersection with technology. Um, but then also that kind of orthogonal collision between real estate, technology, and sustainability. I would just love to hear your, your career arc around that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm really been a lifelong journalist and publisher and then digital content creator, all kinds of different companies. Um, had a really exciting and fun career. I started as uh, a newspaper writer in California, writing about, interestingly, the class between de development and environmentalism. So I've always, in my journalism, always covered the issue where there's tension between one world and another, just as there was early on with technology and real estate. And for 20 years, I, I thought public policy would change the world, you know, I, and then I, I, I faced head on as a journalist politics and realized policy wasn't going to save us from anything. And then I glommed onto technology and really believed for the last, you know, many years that technology was this instrument of immense opportunity for change. And I always love the real estate beat. You know, we spend half our day working and half our day at home. And now actually we're spending all day at home. So home has never been more important. And I always found it to be a fascinating, interesting beat. You know, a lot of human consumer angles. And I was a consumer writer for 20 years, so I came at it. Accidentally started a company called Inman News, which is the leading uh, B2B trade publication for real estate, about a million readers. 
And that happened because I, as a consumer writer, came upon a scandal at the big trade group, the National Association of Realtors. And my editor said, ah, oh, no one cares about that. You know, they'd lost $30 million, kept it a secret from their members. But it opened my eyes to that. And I, this is the early days of the commercial internet. And I was probably one of the first bloggers. I blogged about the scandal. What year, we, what, what year are we talking about right now? 96, you know, so a long time ago. And what I discovered, there were all these real estate people on the internet. Because real, real estate people are very opportunistic. You know, people wonder, how did realtors survive all this year with all this, you know, disruption? And I say, well, they just outwork everybody. They're, they're going seven days a week. Uh, I once compared them, and I have to do this carefully. I lived in New York for a long time, rats in New York City, because you really can't kill them. They, they're so tenacious, you know, that they don't give up. And I'm not saying our realtors are like rats, but they have the same tenacity as a rat in New York City. Um, but there's a lot of them. So I was able to successfully build a readership. But my consumer orientation and my tech orientation really became the lens through which we looked at real estate. So if you can imagine early on, we were, you know, our vision was, you know, um, how do we change the real estate industry for a better consumer experience? And that's kind of been the vision of that company for years. And, you know, initially we said we should have all the listings on the internet, we should have virtual walkthroughs, we should you know, we should have a transparent and an automated transaction. And those be kind of became the pillars of our coverage. And, you know, we watched it evolve and, you know, covered scandal after scandal. You know, the DOJ has investigated the cabal of traditional real estate. Um, people went to prison from, you know, Realtor.com, which is created by the National Association of Realtors. Uh, I mean, it's, quite, it's been, as a news person, an incredible beat. Uh, but still, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's so important to the everyday consumer that it's been a really fun experience. So, you know, I've been all around. I helped Microsoft stop, start Home Advisor. I started other companies. But the genesis and the foundation of my life is as a journalist. And I was lucky enough to discover the real estate beat. And we took it seriously. You know, we, we, we um, in the news people, we can't own shares in real estate companies. Our reporters can't. Uh, it's, you know, there's a real... There's a real uh, wall between journalism and business. Um, we have sponsored content, but it's really clear to the users. So uh, early on, we pissed off all the traditional industry people and they boycotted us and they said they didn't want to read us, but they read us. You know, they put us in spam folders at the corporate level. But slowly but surely, integrity and journalism, which now more than ever, you know, is important. Uh, they came to, I think, respect us, not always like us. And uh, now many of them are customers just because we kind of, uh, and I, this isn't Brad Inman doing this. It's a great team of people over the years. We dusted our competitors and I think we really, we really own the beat now. I agree. That so you've dusted, I agree that you've dusted your competitors. Um, <laughs> and I also, um, I, I like that you compared uh, real estate uh, industry professionals fa favorably, I think in the yeah. way you described it to rats. Um, but yeah. I guess more, I'm just more curious. Because By the way, Brendan, I just want to say thank you for wading into this space. I love the fact, particularly when venture firms specialize so they can really understand a domain. And this is a, this is a tricky industry to figure out. It's not quite as simple as people think. They come in from the outside and so many entrepreneurs, you know, they're going to get rid of realtors only to find out there's, there is a wall, uh, there's a force against them. Part of it is organized real estate, but part of it is just, again, the tenacity of that realtor. So congrats on your, your efforts, because uh, I think domain knowledge is really, really important here.
And I imagine there's some parallels and it sounds like your, your experience in kind of the early days where the real estate industry was, it sounds like uh, unfavorably reactive to what you had built, right? It was just, there's now, it sounds like an investigative journalist that, uh, and a whole organization that is really evaluating us and our behavior and also how we interact with technology and how that benefits the customer and the home buyer. Um, in a very similar way, when we started Fifth Wall, real estate corporates would say to us, well, we already do venture. We don't need another venture fund. We can do this better than you. And obviously, you know, you've seen what's happened to most of the large corporate venture funds in the real estate industry. They're, you know, not taken very seriously anymore. Um, well, so the traditional venture capitalists, and I've been lucky. I started a company called Home Game, TCV, J-Ho got behind me. We had a great exit. And there are companies like that that are all-stars, you know. And But a lot of the venture guys, you know, they're like lemmings. They're, they move from, you know, opportunity to opportunity. And so they come into real estate, and then they get out, and they move into something, and then they come back. And so someone that consistently decides to go to bat in the real estate space, I think you guys are going to come out really strong with this. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just a unique feature of the real estate industry. Like the real estate industry is a relationship driven industry, which is that that is its heritage. And, and, you know, our fifth wall's position, what we've done, and I think just to a large extent, it sounds like Inman's position, it's girded, like our financial position is girded by the integrity and the durability of these, you know, really long term, now high trust relationships we've built with the British land and Heinz and Jacina and Lennar and our large strategic LPs. And What's interesting is how the real estate industry kind of um, initially it kind of refutes change, right? There, there's yeah. this kind of or rejection um, of change, and yeah. and I, I'm, where I'm going with this question is I want to ask obviously about sustainability, but I'll I'll tell you my experience of where we are in real estate tech, and I'm curious to get your view on if you think there's a parallel in climate tech and sustainability for the real estate industry. When we, we started Fifth Wall back in 2016, we would talk to real estate corporates, um, and this was what I would call stage one. Uh, what they would say is, I'm a real estate company. I sell space and buildings. I build buildings. Um, we don't do tech. Uh, yeah. We are not into the tech game. We are not in the tech industry. We are not venture capitalists. My response was kind of, well, you haven't been, and agree, you are not today, but that is not the right side of history. And that was, call it, probably predates 2016. Then there was like stage two, which was the, okay, uh, we do this ourselves. We have our own corporate venture funds. Um, We already do this. And I would kind of look at the corporate venture funds and the people leading them and say, well, that's not really venture capital. That's not like exceptional venture capital. You're not going to see the best, most innovative companies. And by the way, you're kind of replicating all of you all of this all over again. Like you're building gigantic budgets and kind of, you know, really just squandering that money, building teams that are never going to be able to compete candidly with, with a firm like Fifth Wall um, or any, any professional venture capital fund. And that was kind of where I'd say 2016 to 2018. And now where we are is I think, you know, we have 60 corporates working with us. We're kind of now like, okay, technology is important. We need to have a view on technology. Venture capital is the best way to get that view, yeah. sure, let's invest in Fifth Wall's consortium of, of 60 LPs. That, that's where I think kind of real estate tech is, at least on the commercial side. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, one thing, like any industry, it's underestimated the industry, how smart people are. 
you know, the everyday realtor, I, you know, use that analogy, but uh, over the years, I mean, think about it. One, resistance to change. There's a fortune made in real estate. If you look at the richest people in the world, you know, a big part of their wealth has come through the years through real estate. And so not surprisingly, when there's that level of wealth creation, they're crooks, a lot, a lot of scandals in real estate, but there's an unbelievable number of really, really smart people. And, you know, they're smart enough to recognize the folks you're talking about, particularly your LPs, that they're devoted to finding land and property and development and doing transactions and um, their expertise is in investing in technology. So I think for them to, to huddle and, and find people that are, you know, leading the way and investing in, in prop tech particularly, um, you know, it's a, it's a real smart move by them to, to make sure they have a stake in the future, but uh, not try to do it themselves. And they, you need to be a compassionate, as you know, in investing, you need to step away and be more like a third party. When you're actively in it, you're blinded by your own self-interest. Right. And, and by the way, I have to say, I have to, um, you know, pay credit where it's due. In the early days of Fifth Wall, when we were trying to get this message out. Inman was kind enough to have, I think I was a contributor, an op-ed contributor uh, a couple of times, and that was great. And I think you were a speaker and a very good one, by the way. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for everything you do. And now let's move on to sustainability, which is what I was really curious to get your view on, which is if you use that frame, that kind of... Um, that, that heritage of real estate tech, right? And kind of where we've gone from 2016 to 2020. Where are we, do you think, in that arc with respect to real estate and sustainability? 1994. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I'll just tell you a story. It, it doesn't go back to 94, but not, I was in a, invited as a journalist to this, kind of fundraiser, which I shouldn't have been invited to. And it was a pretty conservative group. And the first guy I met, it was in a tweed suit and uh, kind of a classic Georgetown, you know, neoconservative, I think. And we started talking about issues. And I told him I was a journalist and he was kind of shocked I was there. But he asked me what I wrote about. And I said about, you know, the tension between real estate development and environmentalism, which really got its birth in California and San Francisco. And he said, oh, yeah, he goes, uh, he said, uh, environmentalism, that's like a, a watermelon. It's uh, green on the outside and red on the inside. And I didn't quite get it, but he, meant, he was talking about uh, if you're an environmentalist, you're a communist. So that, that was the flavor of the day in terms of how, you know, environmentalism was viewed. And I, I just think, in, in this area, it's always been a fringe element of real estate, you know, getting your building certified, little lightweight sort of steps, but not this overall vision. It's kind of like we experienced this summer over inclusion, you know, people scratched at it, but didn't really do anything fundamentally or structurally important. And I think real estate has a big, big influence uh, on the environment uh, and all these issues and has been very negligent. Um, in many, many, many ways. Um, but, you know, there's also many, many can examples with developers. Can I ask you why you, why you think that is? Because I, I, I appreciate the point that I want to almost dissociate the, the uh, partisanship that I think has come to characterize sustainability as a movement. It sounds like then, and by the way, that continues to today. 
But I think yeah. no one expects real estate owners to themselves be partisan, but they do expect them to be commercial at the very least. And I think now there is actually a commercial imperative to decarbonize. Um, why, has, why is the real estate industry back in 1994, given that it seems like a commercial imperative now, regardless of your political views? Well, this is where I put the onus on the advocates and technologists and others who... Um, is that me? No, I think it's, it's a lot of people. I think this is a shared responsibility. First of all, as you know, any developer, let's use a developer's example or a property owner, they have facilities costs and they have operating costs. And most of the attempts to bring this to fruition in terms of changing behavior has been about adding regulation. And I'll go back to my policy days. And a lot, often these policies are politicalized and they're moved through the, you know, through the circuit by special interests and you know, special tax breaks and credits, but the burden often is on the developer. At least that's how the developer sees it and real estate uh, property owners. And I think they've reacted that this is just another onerous expense without a public policy benefit. No one's persuaded them that in fact, it could affect your operating costs in a positive way if we were to deliver the right ideas, the right public policy and the right technology. So I think both sides are to blame, but the real estate community generally resists change because they have a fortune to protect and they wanna make sure when no one is carelessly eroding that fortune uh, for some you know, careless, good idea, but overly expensive uh, public policy. And I think Developers are just an easy mark and the real estate industry is an easy mark and we'll just burden them with a cost that we won't explain. We can't really show the, the benefits and certainly no internal cost benefit to the people involved. And I think as I look at real estate technology, the way it moved and began to move quickly is when we solved some of those problems for the people that had a self-interest in the traditional real estate. We have a conference called Real Estate Connect and it's about connecting technologists and entrepreneurs who we really hailed and incubated and supported because we believed and they didn't have a place to go. But we also said they needed to marry with the tried and tested practices of real estate people. And it's, so it's been a war, it's been a clash, it's been, a, and, and we're probably not gonna make much progress until we enjoin the, the forces of real estate to use all their power and their clout, one, to get good public policy, and two, to get policy at all. And uh, so I don't know, I don't wanna be Pollyannish about the problem, but I think, I think that's, part of the issue. And I, I don't defend the industry. I just think one, self-interest, two, the cost that they've been told they have to bear, and three, none of us really understanding the real benefits. But then finally, you know, the consumer has been uh, silenced in this debate. There's scientists, there's politicians, and there's special interests. And we're, as the public, sitting, listening to this debate. Most of us have been convinced about the science but no one has told us anything about why we should specifically be, be concerned. And I'll use this example. Years ago, I was giving a speech during the dot-com crash to a group of employees at HomeGain, and we came through that really well. But we had a nest egg, thanks to Jay Hogue and others. But I was giving these speeches to the team and trying to warm them up and get them excited. And I said, we're like a, in a cabin in the woods and a big storm's outside, but we've got wood to get through the winter and my CEO said, Brad, it's great you give those speeches, but what the 
the employees really want to know is, are they going to lose their job? What is their self-interest in that rap you're giving them, in that big morale speech? What do they have to lose or gain? And so I think we have to mobilize the public. If you look at what happened in environmentalism, the environmentalists at UC Berkeley, smartest people in the world, uh, they couldn't get their message across until the public became concerned about that big massive development coming next door to their neighborhood. And once they were mobilized, the environmental movement took off. The environmental movement didn't take off by a bunch of elites and a bunch of experts, Brendan. It took off when the public embraced the concept. And I think that's what needs to happen here. So how do we, and, and I'll use this to talk about this new project that we're working on called Climate Check. Um, we looked at all this data at the scientists, the academics, the private REITs, they all have the data. They're spending millions of dollars to get it because they're worried about the, the risk to their portfolio. But the public doesn't have it. And if once you give it to them and you say, hey, guess what? This could have this impact on your, your, your house, your most important investment, where you live, how you treat that investment, what you do with that investment, then we'll mobilize the public. And then climate change has some personal self-interest to them. And Brad, we, you know, it's great to say we're going to convince everybody to be an idealist, Brandon, but that does never, never created change ever in history. I totally agree with you. And I think self-interest is a massive driver. I just I actually wanted to ask, so for, you know, climate check, um, just walk through, like, what, what does that do? Like, so it, what are these kind of existential risks? Just so people watching can kind of frame what that means and what that looks like, you know, for a homeowner, or for a building owner. So I have to give credit. Um, I have a son who teaches at UC Berkeley. He's very successful on his own in real estate. And he and a couple young, smart people and scientists at Cal, and some other scientists got together and they noticed there was all this data out that their partners, the REITs and other investors were using. And they said, why don't we give it to the public? And my son Cal called me and said, dad, what do you think of this? And I said, I envision, as he did at the same moment, a search engine, simple search engine. And this is what's so important. We got to keep this stuff simple. And you type in your address and you get a risk analysis on your home with a score, just like a FICO score or DNA or any other thing that we get an instant, you know, like a Carfax, you get a comprehensive report on the risk to your property. And what is that? It's fire, it's wind, it's hurricanes, it's, it's all the hazard elements, all of which are accelerating and becoming more dangerous to the quality of life and the economic well-being because of what it'll do to your real estate uh, because of climate change. And so, our data scientists got, and we, we were talking about it, I think there's two billion uh, pieces of data. There's uh, thousands of different databases, all localized. You know, we're talking about rivers and flooding and wind and heat and, and sea rise. And they were able to aggregate all this data and then write an algorithm on top of it, and it spits out a score. So you get an aggregate score of where, you know, what is it high risk, is it low risk? And then it drills down to each and every one of those hazards. The reason we're just democratizing, just like giving listings to people on the internet, just like CoStar did in commercial and Zillow did um, in residential. The data was there, but it was in an MLS book. Guess where this was hiding out? It was hiding out with academics and scientists, the ones that are preaching change. And in fact, we went to them and they reacted and they said, oh, the public can get that. And we said, really? How do you get it? And they go, well, if you go online, you can pull down our spreadsheets and you give me a break, a spreadsheet. It reminds me of a realtor saying, you can get the MLS. You can get it in this book from me. The scientists are behaving very similar to the industry, uh, the real estate industry. And we persuaded them, do you really want change? Yes. Well, then let's democratize your data. 
let's make it available to the public. And then the second piece, let's make it available to them in a way they'll understand. And the reaction's been overwhelming. The public totally gets it. Uh, we did one survey of 500 home buyers. 94% said they would use it in shopping for a house. Um, so I, I don't mean to do a commercial on climate check, but it's just one example of many things happening now. There's a movement now to give this data to the public. Then we can mobilize the public. And then what happens? They become advocates with city councils, with national, they start to understand the risk to them. And now I don't think people do. It's just this big ideological debate between the left and the right. And anything that hangs in that, in that zone, Brendan, is not going to create any sort of action. And I think it's a really interesting example. I actually want to talk a little more about it because I think it is so interesting to this point of how do we kind of draw this connection, this kind of causal connection between this abstraction everyone has in their mind of, of climate change and the buildings we work in, the homes we live in, the homes we're about to buy, all of that, th there's not a logical connection that, that feels imminent, I think, for a lot of people. Now, there are moments where it does feel imminent, for example, when natural disasters happen, when Miami is flooded, when there's fires in no Northern California, but by then it's too late, right? And yeah. so what I think is profound about this is it's, it's providing that information, it's providing that intelligence much earlier. And the question I had is about just the incentives within that ecosystem, which is, you made the point that academics have kind of, you know, had this information about these existential risks from natural disasters and how they affect homes and buildings. And I imagine insurance companies just intuitively have that as well. That's how they're running their actuarial models. Um, is there, was there a reason why this was not flowing to the consumer? Was it as simple as just you needed to put the wrapper on it to make it a very simple search engine where you can type in your address? And by the way, I'm going to do it right after this, uh, this Zoom call. Yeah, I, I think what you used a word before we started, Brent, is right on. There is a prop tech now, thank God. You know, there was, back when we started Inman, there was a prop tech industry, but it was very small and it wasn't capitalized and there wasn't venture money and there wasn't... Right. You know, there's the, there's the old expression, how do we get to the moon? Passion, brains, and money. And we had a little bit of passion on the tech side and a little bit of brains and a little bit of money. And then once the money really started flowing is when we started seeing change in prop tech. And you've been, you've been at the heart of that. Uh, it's similar here. You know, there has really been very little technology applied to this um, in a uniform, dedicated, consistent way that would make for change. And, and some will argue with me, there's certainly been technology companies around, but I think finally, you know, like giving it a name, climate tech, you know, that, what's that gonna do? That's, that's gonna, you know, open up people's uh, ears and they're gonna say, I better look at this, I better invest in this. Uh, I mean, look at BlackRock, they've been making all these incredible statements, you know, we just saw their earnings report, <laughs> they've got trillions uh, that's when things change. And then you marry, just like an iBuying, you marry, you know, Wall Street and, and Silicon Valley and you get real action. But I think technology is one missing piece. And then I think the other is just the discussion. People are talking over each other and talking way over the consumer. And you get embroiled in a political debate. You know, it's been politicalized. Um, but I see that changing rapidly. And I think now, Let's get the data to the public. It's that simple. Just like we did in real estate, get the data to the public. Right. And what, it, what happened there? You had a more vibrant real estate market. It was more efficient. It was more transparent. And I think if we make 
climate tech part of this solution and give the data to the public, we'll have not just an active debate, but we'll have a consensus around action. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that what you're doing is so interesting in that regard, because we've talked a lot about how do we, how do we raise awareness ground up from the consumer about what they care about so that this can kind of create this uh, ideological and kind of activist groundswell that will in turn affect change. And so turning the page to that, to how do we affect change? You, you drew this uh, analogy, which I think is a great one, of how do you put a man on the moon? Um, and you know, we've, this is something we've looked at for just the commercial real estate industry. For the commercial real estate industry to decarbonize, truly, trillions of dollars are going to have to be invested into climate tech, specifically for the real estate industry. So everything from hardware solutions to software solutions and building systems to alternative energy, like capital has to flow into that R&D. Our estimate, yeah. and I'll tell you how we get this, we, about $50 trillion required to decarbonize the global economy. Real estate industry is about 30% of all global emissions. So you run that staggering. math, like it's, it's staggering. It's staggering, right? It's just, it's a shocking stat. And so you figure, okay, doing rough justice math, that means that we're talking about 15 to $20 trillion to decarbonize the real estate industry. Now, here's the shocking stat. The real estate industry has invested uh, $96 million into climate tech uh, over the last decade. And so if we were to say, okay, putting a man on the moon was this, you know, bold statement, right? Kennedy made and behind it that on its own, it was just a statement. Um, and it was an ambition and it was grand and it was, it was, I don't know, somehow exalted and it mobilized people to do things, but that wasn't enough. Capital had to flow in. I mean, it created the a mobilization of capital to, to solve this gigantic science problem of how do we actually put a man on the moon, right? So that's the moon analogy. Real estate, the most polluting industry in the world, a lot of companies have committed to decarbonizing. Regulators have told them they have to decarbonize. And so you'd be like, well, that's also a bold, grand, ambitious, exalted goal that we should all be rooting yeah. for. And yeah. you're seeing a lot of talk around it. Um, but again, $15 trillion is probably required and we're $96 million in. Yeah. Before I go any further, can I just ask you, why is that? why is it cost so much or why are they not investing? Why is it so little? Why is that? Why is the, why is the investment so little today? Yeah. I, I don't think anyone's communicated effectively that it's in their self-interest to do anything and people normally in business. And this is true of wall street. I'm sure it's true of prop tech and climate. People don't wake up every morning um, asking uh, themselves why they should spend a whole bunch of money unnecessarily, and I say unnecessarily because no one's persuaded them that they should or need to. You're starting to hear the voices, but it's just voices. Um, and I think, you know, I'll go back to real estate, same thing, Brandon. It was, the, the amount of money spent by the real estate industry in tech was zero. Right. And that's why Zillow zoomed in. And so I do think you're gonna see disruption and disintermediation, you're already seeing it. You know, my son develops really high quality developments and you know, he leans into the quality, but also, you know, the carbon footprint and all those other issues. And that, that's a new generation of, of developers that's coming along. You meet them, you know them, they're investing in you. And I think, but I think it's also impar 
imperative that that price tag can come down dramatically, Brandon, just as the cost of a real estate transaction can come down with technology. If you if the investment investment dollars there, there's going to be a return on saving money to get to where we want to go. The second thing I think is just demonstrating that actually there is an investment probably capitalized over time, but we can also create some operating efficiencies that I don't think we've done a very good job of because I don't think the technologies are matured enough to show that. I mean, in the old days they would say, you know, PG&E will give you a tax credit if you do X, Y, Z, you know, in your toilet and your, your sink and your shower. And can then I, basically can I you, add, the payout was- Can I just ask you one thing on that, Brad? Because it's, it's, somehow that feels like a self-fulfilling prophecy because I hear the same thing, that the technology is not developed enough and it's not appropriate enough and it's not cost effective enough for us to practice. And that might yeah. be true, but that's also because not enough capital is flowing into it, meaning it's, it's yeah. the same problem, right? No, I agree. But I think where did the capital come in real estate? It didn't come from the industry. And uh, they fought it and they lost ground and they lost position and they lost authority with the public. And companies like Zillow and the residential side took over and CoStar and their market caps are greater than all the real estate community together. Their self-interest will be threatened. Their fortunes will be threatened as we talked at the top of this conversation. And they can choose to either be active and participating or they can be overregulated and they can be disrupted. And I think both things always happen. That's always the cycle, as you know, right. in the technology curve of innovation. And uh, But preaching to them too hard and too long in hopes that somehow they're going to jump and take responsibility as they should, you know, you got to bang on a different door, I think, in this world, just like every other avenue of disruption we've seen. Yeah, I, I totally I'm be discouraged, but I, I think it's uh, waiting for the industry to solve this problem is like, like waiting for the industry to create a better, more transparent real estate experience. Yeah, and, and you're right. Like looking, looking at you know a bit of financial history from the real estate industry, you you have seen this kind of like Luddite reflexive response from the real estate industry. New technology. Well, plus, plus, Brandon, it's, it's, it's uh, fragmented. You know, yes. if, you're, right. if you're attacking the airline industry, which, you know, hopefully we're going to do a better job of, you know, you got to deal with 20 companies. You know, in real estate, whether it's commercial or residential, this is an extraordinarily fragmented industry. There is no single company that owns share. Um, you know, significant enough to say you have a meeting of 20 people and you influence the outcome like you could in, say, air transportation. So it's, it's a little, it's, a, it's more difficult uh, to herd these people in any one direction, particularly one that, you know, rings of idealism. Similar in affordable housing, you know, people worry more about people that can't afford housing and they worry none about the people that can't afford housing. So, uh, you know, these aren't, these aren't intractable problems. There's many examples of problems being solved. You know, I remember in LA, I lived in LA, I was writing then a lot for the LA Times. And during that period, um, you know, I think there were 323 days of dangerous, you know, um, pollution in Los Angeles. And now it's down to 30. I mean, you know, you could light a fire to the what, Lake Erie, light a match to Lake Erie and it would burn. And now you can almost drink the water. So we solve these problems. This is bigger and more looming. But I think that's the other thing. We make it too big and too looming and too intimidating that it gives everyone a chance to, as I always say, escape to the back of the room, mm -hmm. not sit in the front row, because it's easier at the back of the room. No one's going to point to you and, and give you responsibility. And I think here these issues are just too far-fetched for us to get our brains around. 
But what isn't far-fetched is, hey, guess what? In 5, 10, or 15 years, this the, the heat rise and the sea rise level is going to affect you. It's great to always point to pictures of Antarctica, but that's a long way from 1110 East Main Street in Carlinville, Illinois, where I'm from, near the Mississippi River. But wouldn't it be nice if I could just dial up my address and find out what it's going to do to me, as opposed to polar bears in Antarctica? I, and I don't want to say people are insensitive, but again, I think they're, they're motivated by self-interest. We've got to bring this home. Also, once we rally the public, then we rally the industry. Uh, if you look again at real estate, when the consumer didn't wait for the industry, they started looking at listings online. You know, the realtors could scream and yell and say, don't do that. It's not safe. You know, you don't put your price. It's not safe for you to put your house up there. The public just doesn't. So we just got to figure out ways to get the public more involved. And that'll move the industry. But we shouldn't wait for the industry to make that enormous investment that I agree they must make. Yeah. And, and there, has to be, there has to be love and hate here. There has to be, here's how to do things differently and giving them training wheels. But there has to be regulation. There has to be a hammer. And there has to be some requirements. Um, but we got to think it through really carefully. A lot of efforts to do that with developers have failed. Inclusionary housing, oh, not, not a great track record, you know? And it seems so logical. You're building a big project. We're giving you an entitlement. That entitlement has so much economic value. And we saw this with environmentalism in California with developers. You know, if we give them an entitlement, they have to give us something in exchange. You know, those, you know, and there's all development rights. There's so many different strategies here to force their hand. But I think the more we can show an incentive for them to do it, the more you're going to get to those trillions of dollars that we need. Yeah. And, and drawing, again, a parallel from residential to commercial, I guess the two things you are seeing that would be interesting to consider, you know, for climate check is regulations are changing very fast, right? And there's this dynamic where there is this kind of partisan overlay, right? There is this, um, there's a partisan lens that obviously governs how stringent environmental regulations are in any given city or any given state. But regardless yeah. of that, if you look at any state in the United States and you look at voting districts, right, kind of red being probably less likely to have an, you know, strong environmental laws, blue being more likely, and you were to say any state, say Nebraska, right, and you were to say, where's most of the real estate industry, where's most of the real estate value in Nebraska, right? Where is it concentrated? It's concentrated in the big cities. And you look at a voting map and you're like a lot of red districts and a few, maybe one or two blue dots. It just so happens yeah. that all of the real estate value is concentrated within those blue dots. So meaning there's, there's a favorable dynamic to how this might play out with regulations. And I yeah. wonder, how do you think about that um, intersecting with, I guess the, the question is, how do you think about political change intersecting with the existential risk, right? In terms of where, what you're talking about, just making it very practical and self-interested for, for a commercial real estate owner, or for a residential homeowner. Well, I think it's how we communicate. Again, um, we did a soft launch with uh, Climate Check and I had them pull a map today. I was just curious, 50 states. There's no, one that, there's no one that doesn't think they're probably affected. And they think they're affected. It could be drought, you know, somewhere in the Midwest. It could be rivers or tributaries. It could be, it could be any number of things, temperature. Um, and there was no blue-red state in terms of people's concern and worry. It is an existential threat, but right. again, I, it's not. 
I get my, that the environmental disasters don't care about red states and blue states. I'm more talking about the economic costs associated with just taxation, right? Carbon taxes yeah. actually asymmetrically impacting some cities versus others. Yeah, I mean, it is probably only because of the concentration of the population, but the threat is evenly distributed throughout this country. There is no question. Some more than others, some more severe than others. But, um, you know, I, I think also political leadership here can make a really significant difference. You know, someone that is, you know, think about it, the Paris Peace Accord. Well, of course, but boy, that's Paris. Like the average American, again, someone here in this country, like you pointed out with JFK, um, you know, he was able to mobilize a whole country around this kind of existential opportunity. It was just exploratory. I think it's got to be seen more as an adventure, maybe less fear-based, uh, maybe more opportunistic, like we saw in Los Angeles. The quality of your air will improve, so everybody, you know, all the political forces marshaled around it. The public was totally in favor of it. Uh, the cost of gasoline went up, and people bear, you know, bore the brunt of it. I think there's many examples where we've shown leadership to conquer. I think the fact this one is, it's kind of like, if the polls show that so-and-so is winning big, then other people don't vote at all. There's a danger here that it's so difficult. It's so complex. And I would argue the advocates and the scientists have been doing that. They've been making it so impossible to solve in hopes that they'll make it seem so scary and so dangerous that someone will do something. Some of that works with some of the politicians, but I don't think it works with the public. And the politicians need to start hearing from the public. So I keep, I keep going around and around, but I think it's really simpler than we sometimes think. Um, when it comes to property, I mean, we just need technology. We need it. We need it now. Uh, you know, really, really just it's just, it's absent in the industry entirely. And I guess two, two more questions, because I feel like we could talk forever. But I guess one of the questions is, you made this point about educating the consumer around this. And I think the fact that real estate is a order of magnitude more important with respect to your personal carbon footprint than any other industry you associate with, right? I think intuitively, if you ask most, pe most people, what are the things I can do to mitigate climate change as an individual? It's recycle, maybe it's go vegan, don't use plastic straws. But in fact, all of those things are important. They are just less important as an order of magnitude than the buildings you choose to occupy and the homes you choose to live in, right? There are the, the apartments you choose to live in. How, how do, I guess, how are you thinking about yeah. educating the consumer around that, that just differential that I think isn't intuitive to people? Well, one is we consume too much real estate, right? Um, there was a law proposed by an amazing man, Don Turner, um, many, many years ago to allow second units in the backyard of single family homes um, you know, 20, 25 years ago. It was finally enacted and enforced in the last few years in California. And now you're seeing them built everywhere because it's easy. It's easy for the consumer. And it created all this massive amounts of affordable housing. It also densified these neighborhoods so that theoretically there's less car traffic, there's less, you know, everything. But you split up a house, you split up a lot, and you reduce the per capita carbon footprint. So 
there's so many smart, easy to do public policies that have a self-interest. The homeowner has a self-interest. The tenant has a self-interest in sharing that property. You know, the excess square footage or the excess, you know, um, lot size. And, and I think that's, that's the marriage. And that's, Brendan, where you're in the right space. If we can marry the best thinking in real estate with the best thinking in climate change, I think a lot of the solutions will come from that cooperation, that connection between those two special interests. We just don't want to wait 25 years for the policymakers to enact practical, easy to, uh, personal responsibility, accountability, recycling, I, you know, all of that's great. But let's give people a economic, personal self-interest in taking some of these actions. And I think there's a ton of public policies we haven't pursued. I think there's kind of a broken record of policies that everyone talks about. And I think when that happens, we need new voices, we need new players, we need new ways of thinking, and the technology community is getting into it now. Um, but that, that will expand the horizon of smart public policies and policies at work. I don't know. I'm Pollyannish. Am I too Pollyannish, Brendan? No, you're not. I'm, I'm, look, I'm hoping that you and me and our two organizations can have a hand in shaping that change, you know, in different regards. But I think that's frankly what we're all talking about. I don't think, I don't think that's Pollyannish at all. I think that's, that's the right thing to do. And I guess... I Let wanna... me just give you another example, and this goes way back. I was briefly in my early 20s, a community organizer, the old Saul Linsky group. And the way we mobilized people in urban communities, and the, the issue then was a redlining, because people were, they draw a red line and you couldn't get a mortgage in these neighborhoods. And we didn't mobilize them by going, redlining, banks are bad. And part of it was that, anxiety, and people were protesting and, and the traditional sort of stuff. But the way we said it is, hey, if you improve your house, and we then get the city to clean up that street or get rid of that junk car. And people could relate to that junk car down the street far more than when I use this big term redlining. Isn't that horrible? They related to, will someone finally get rid of the junk car down the street? And they would show up for a meeting over the issue of the junk car, but would never show up for a meeting to talk about redlining. You know, um, and some did, some did, but my point was that translated into civic action to improve urban neighborhoods that were being denied capital by mortgage lenders. And so this is my final question, actually. Um, and I, I like that story because it's very apropos to this, which is, and, and the answer, by the way, I think can honestly be solutions like climate tech. But my question is, th there are people that, you know, watch this, that are very passionate about this issue, that want to affect change, not real estate owners, but homeowners and potentially renters of office buildings and shoppers and people that care about real estate, care about sustainability and want to affect change. What could and should they do to hold the real estate industry accountable? Well, I think in this country, it's been proven that, um, Civil protest helps a lot. Um, so let's never discount that. Um, I think also it's having reasoned discussions with the people that have the assets and uh, sitting around a table and coming up with solutions. 
Because what I found in just going back to redlining or the stuff in real estate and all of this is you hold people's feet to the fire, you get them to the table, and then you have an honest discussion about things we can do together. And I really think it's very localized. I think this thing, this debate, like I, you know, and I, I use it only because Antarctica and Paris, there's a certain part of the world that can relate to all of that. But the everyday, let's use Americans, don't. And I would say this is true around the world. Let's bring this issue right down to the local level and let's have all of the parties in every community, you know, at the table discussing solutions to take action collectively with policy and actions and investment and all the things we know that make change and always have. Um, again, sounds idealistic, but I think that's, that's what this is going to take. I really worry. It's why I got cynical about, I'll never forget, I was writing a story about uh, education and I believe it or not no internet I was going through the microfiche and looking at the the political candidates and where they took money and I saw that the California Teachers Association had given Willie Brown the speaker of the house a uh, $8,000 crystal vase and that I think that day the lights went on and Willie Brown was a very good speaker and a, but he was quite a deal maker that's when I realized, wow, you know, schools are probably not going to change if we leave it to Willie Brown and the state legislature. And uh, I think it's true of all of these what seem like insurmountable problems like education and climate change and all and everything else that if we leave it to the politicians and we're passive and we're not active and we're not engaged, you know, everybody, like take that person you just described, what are they doing in their own office, you know, when they go back to put pressure on their employer to put pressure on their landlord to do all the necessary things. You know, we've seen this with this summer, incredible things going on with employees inside companies, putting pressure and demands on their employers. And I think that same sort of civic action inside the employee workplace to pressure the tenants of the buildings, to pressure the landlords. And I think it translates into leases and how they sign leases and what their expectations are. Um, I think there's a zillion ways to do it, but it's got to be brought down to Main Street. It can't be, it can't be in Washington. I just, I've been cynical about that for too many years. I just, I've never seen them do anything on their own that was serving the public in the way in this particular issue we're going to get done. And I agree, it has to be brought down to the individual level and the, the, the home level. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go check out my address right now on climate yeah, change. But, uh, but, you know, think about the election, Brendan. If, so we vote and people get the result they think they want on climate change. It's still intractable. It, it's still, you know, it's overwhelming. It's still, as you can see and said so well and what you're attacking, the real estate industry, getting them to move off the dime. You know, they have lobbyists. They, they're going to cut deals. There's going to be compromise. If we leave it to them, we're in trouble. Yeah. Well, I think that's the role of you know, that, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm personally so passionate about it is this unique position Fifth Wall sits is, you know, the largest, the most active venture capital fund. Like, why don't we use that position to affect real change? And I would say similarly, I know that you are as well at, at Inman. And um, so maybe I'm a bit more uh, optimistic about the capacity of the real estate industry for uh, change and real action and frankly, real dollar commitments to, to solve this issue. Um, but I would love- There to is money there. And I didn't mean to say that we shouldn't try to get it. Yeah. There is yeah. money there, but don't be naive about it. But you know, what we did at Inman, we made technology fun, so much fun that the traditional industry wanted to be part of it. And 
and they are now and more than you know not as much maybe as they should be but a lot more than they were 20 years ago and you come to an inmate conference and it's exciting you know it's not wringing of hands it's not oh we're never going to get this done or it wasn't like you know wait for some politician to save us um we got to make it interesting and fun and worthwhile and gratifying and useful and and show the results that you know excites our users and the public and and that's what's fun about technology you know that that it, you feel like you're changing the world um and that we got to get the industry part of that movement because it's a fun movement it's an exciting movement and that's where change comes from yeah i agree well i would be excited to work with you to help solve that so let's, let's do it let's you know what we need to do right away i'm going to take the climate uh uh, tech, you call it climate tech, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take, we're going to start using that at Inman because that's, we just got to cover that beat and, you know, to help mobilize the industry that reads Inman for sure. Feel free to accredit language, that. Language is, so, language is so important here, Brandon. I found in all these enterprises I've been involved with, if feel, you're talking feel, about people. Feel free to, to accredit uh, Fifth Wall to, to climate. Wall, the reason sure. I say that is because you know, there, there was this nomenclature historically around clean tech and green tech that I think um, kind of, I, I think almost had a stigma associated with them because of the performance of investments in those sectors. And um, so I think there's, there's a new opportunity to recast this issue for real estate owners. And that's why we use the term climate tech. And that's why we you know, have advocated, and that's why we're raising our climate tech funds. I just think this is such an important thing for the industry. And you're right, language is so important. Yeah, it really is. And I, you made a good point. You know, it's just like green on the outside, red on the inside. It's, there needs to be a new language and it, you know, it needs to be thought through carefully. But, you know, if you start getting investors involved, that's going to get the ear and the interest of the real estate industry. And then you can bring them to the table. And then, you know, there's bargaining chips to get movement and get the kind of investment you talked about. So this conversation made me very optimistic. You all, you all are doing great work, and I'm really excited to hear you're doing it in this world as well. And you are as well, Brad. This is really exciting. Well, thank you, everyone, for watching Building to Zero. Uh, we've got an amazing lineup of guests, just like Brad, uh, that will be coming on over the course of the next few months. Um, so feel free to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And Brad, thank you so much for joining. Really enjoyed doing it, Brendan. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building to Zero. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.